the core of my evolution and thought surrounds this notion that at the time of saying that, my crosshairs, my bullseye was on medication because it was a short-term solution to my angst over a roller coaster ride of feelings about how uh, Ritalin was affecting my day-to-day life, uh, creativity, my emotional state, etc. I think it was easy to point the crosshairs at that um, because it's so black and white. It's very clear. However, uh, a favorite quote of mine is, if you're trying to solve a problem that's solvable in your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. ADHD Rewired episode 110. This is the show designed to help those of us who have really good intentions and a slightly wandering attention. My name is Eric Tivers. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, coach, and consultant. We know that starting can be the hardest part, so let's get started. But first, let me thank our sponsors. Did you hear this week's episode of the Tom Nardone Show, the one on marriage? He announced that sales of his book, Chasing Kites, is up, and he credited you, the ADHD Rewired Community. So let's see here how a little peer pressure works. All your friends are doing it. Don't be the only one in the ADHD Rewired Community not to have read Chasing Kites. Go to ADHDrewired.com and click on the Chasing Kites image at the right side of the page, or go directly to Tom Nardone. .net. Get his book, Chasing Kites. Hi, my name is Nisha Subramanian. Um, you heard me on episode 98. I was also part of Eric's uh, last coaching group. And ever since the coaching group wound up, I have been helping out with uh, the next two coaching groups. We have some nerdy titles that have been given to me. I've been called the group moderator systems administrator uh, and some other titles but mostly I feel like I've been watching a whole group of people going through the same experience that I went through and that's just very exciting for me it has made me realize how crucial it was for me to do this group it's gotten me really excited about this model the fact that a group of 12 people can get together and uh, really change each other's lives for the better of course with Eric's leadership which is invaluable. It's just so exciting. It's such a good message for the ADHD community. If you're on the fence about joining the group or if you're listening and you're struggling with your productivity and you know, always uh, feeling like you haven't started your life or always feeling like you're never able to complete a project, which is exactly how I felt, I highly recommend go to, go to Eric's website, set up a meeting with him and talk it through And just start to have that conversation and start to think of what if I was in this position. I'd also recommend you listen to the podcast episodes of people who have been part of the previous coaching groups. You know, we're not here to sell you anything. It's been a life-changing experience. And I would love for you to join me and many of the others who have experienced this. It's, uh, It's something that you have to see for yourself. You know, when I heard people tell me that they joined the 
the group after listening to my podcast episode i wondered if you know their experience was going to mirror mine well it may not have mirrored mine but i can definitely see people having those very same aha moments that i did and it's very exciting i hope that you will consider joining this excitement and uh, rewiring your adhd thank you nisha Go to coachingrewired.com and schedule your free 20-minute consultation with me today. Register for this summer's session by April 15th and lock in early registration pricing. Don't wait for pricing to go up. Monthly payment plans are available. Go to coachingrewired.com and prepare to get your ADHD rewired. Pricing was up April 15th. Welcome back to another episode of ADHD Rewired. I am really excited to have in the virtual ADHD Rewired studios, currently in zero degree Illinois, Stephen Tonti, who is a freelance writer, director, and public speaker based in New York. Stephen speaks publicly about growing up with ADHD and now tours as a professional speaker after his success of the 2013 presentation he gave for, and this is where you might know him from, from TEDx, uh, the TEDx Carnegie Mellon, where he gave his speech on, it was shown on YouTube. After, what was it, his, your girlfriend said, hey, they have a table at your college looking for speakers and you decided to sign up. Is that, is that the story? Um, so the story was a, like a little more nuanced. I and my girlfriend at the time used to get into arguments frequently about uh, this very specific clause, I am ADHD or I have ADHD. And I was and, am, and still are, uh, still am a part of the I am ADHD community. And uh, at the time she was pretty dead set on I have ADHD. And after one of our arguments where uh, we got really heated and, you know, ADHD is who I am. No, it's not. It doesn't define you. I walked by the TEDx student speaker table maybe a few hours later, a few days later, and thought, um, this, is the, this is the time to, to, to dig my heels in, as any stubborn boyfriend would do, and, um, uh, <laughs> and, and deliver a speech to a jury of my peers about how I am ADHD and how I love that and how I celebrate it and don't think we should hide from it. And so you competed against how many people to uh, actually get the opportunity to get on the TEDx uh, stage? So the numbers have definitely changed over the three years, but that first audition was, I think we submitted you uh, digitally a 500 to a thousand word explanation of what we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in the number of two to 300 people submitted those. Um, then from that, they selected 75 to 100 students to audition with a five-minute talk. Then from that, they picked mm, 20 to 30 for the 10-minute audition. And then they narrowed that down to, I distinctly remember, seven speakers and three, no, four performers uh, to compete for the 18-minute talk. And then from that, they picked two students to speak and one student to perform. Did you think when you were first doing this that, that you had a chance to be selected? I knew that I, I was confident in my passion mm -hmm. for performance and for public speaking. I had spoken at uh, 
meetings in high school. Uh, I went to an, a religious high school in Dallas, Texas, and we had chapel every morning and I gave uh, chapel talks. Okay. Um, and so and I, for I those of you who didn't see him, he just gave air quotes on his chapel talks. <laughs> I, I use air quotes because it still feels funny to say that to this day. Um, <laughs> and so I, I, okay, I, knew that I, yeah, sorry. I knew that I had, I had been practicing, so to speak uh -huh. for years. I was a senior in college, uh, as a drama major. So I had gone through four years of like Carnegie Mellon school drama boot camp, And I was pretty sure that I had a good chance of at least getting to the last stage. Um, so my first audition was extremely confident. My second audition was way less so. And I will be honest that after my 10 minute audition, I was worried that I wasn't going to make it to the third. What, what, what happened that made you worried? So my first five minute was pure anecdote and they loved it. They really, like, there were 10 or 11 panelists and they all had questions. They were like, they, in, in so many words, they're like, you're going to come back for the 10 minute. After the, between the five and the 10 minute, I thought, okay, 10 minutes, I got to double my time. Let's throw in some statistics, some, some facts about ADHD and Ritalin and Adderall and the medication and therapies. And sure enough, when I gave the 10 minutes, the response was, we still love your anecdotal part, but the facts and the statistics are so heavy and sometimes depressing that we don't. Like we don't want to, we don't want to hear you tell us about all the sad stuff, which, which, which it seems like you, you thought you had, you owed us that. And I was like, yeah, I did. And they're like, cut that out. Like, just, just tell us your story. And so by the third audition, which I did get, I was worried I wouldn't, um, it was again, back to purely anecdotal and just where I came from, how I was raised, how I dealt with growing up ADHD. Now you started, um, our conversation today saying, that this was all kind of triggered by uh, this argument you had with your girlfriend, whether you are ADHD or you have ADHD. But in your TED Talks, you say you are a lot of things. And so what I actually want to do uh, really quickly is I want to, uh, we're going to throw in this clip, uh, your introduction, I believe it was from your introduction, where you talk about all the things that you are. Hi. My name is Steven Tanti, and I'm a director, and a, and a writer, an actor, a drummer, scuba diver, soccer player, a camera operator, an airbrush artist, a physicist, a stargazer, a rock climber, a snowboarder, a model maker, a stage manager, a camp counselor, a PA, a DJ, a club president, a magician, and for a brief stint in May of 2012, I was called upon to repair two stopwatches which had stopped working. <laughs> Who am I, you ask? My name is Stephen Tonti, and I have ADHD. And I think that's such a great clip. Thanks. So, you know, you. So, what, have you added any kind of slashes? I often say that people with ADHD, like, we're the creators of the slash. Because we <laughs> yeah, have so absolutely. many things that we like to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I. Uh, so, so deeply are we the creators of the slash. I have tried to um, make myself more unique, and I use two slashes now. So I double slash. Like the That's HTTP, which backslash, backslash. And, and you know the reason for that? Uh, it's because I uh, read very quickly and stumble, right? So like a classic ADHD sort of reading, I read and then forget what I just read. And the double slash just is a much clearer divider between things. It's purely selfish. 
Well, my my question is actually more of a tangential question regarding um, the reason for why there's two slashes after the the URLs of HTTP colon slash slash. Oh, like why the yeah. double slash for HTTP? Yeah. Okay. Based on the sheer number of CS friends I have, I should know this, but I admittedly do not. I I think I heard a story on NPR about this. From a, it was they were interviewing an old programmer who like created that whatever you want to even call it. And yeah. I think his answer was there really was no particular reason. He just decided to, it was like a random, like there was no actual purpose other than he just decided to. Maybe it was the microsecond before that he typed T twice. So HTTP slash slash. Maybe. They're just, I'm, I'm going just purely on like animal instinct and the rhythm of typing, you know, HTTP slash slash slash, you know? So I'm going on the, um, the, uh, sometimes not so great ADHD memory of something that I think I heard once that I could be completely wrong on. So what you just learned may or may not be actually accurate. So um, there you go. So (laughs) (laughs) now, all right. So you've been doing a lot of public speaking. Um, You and I actually met at uh, the the Chad conference at uh, this past year, 2015, I think it was Roberto Olivardi's talk on, uh, on, bipolar disorder um and um so we got kind of got to talking and you have just a really interesting thing background story so i want to kind of get into that you know there was one thing though that um uh i wanted to kind of talk to you about about your ted talks that because i really really liked your your ted talks but there was one little asterisk that i i was like oh i wish you didn't say that Mm -hmm. and i have a feeling you probably know what that's about Uh uh-huh What do you think it's about? Uh, the statement that I made towards the end of the speech that I get the most backlash from, uh, and I say most um, sort of cautiously or tenuously because it's it's not so much, but predominantly is has to do with the medication uh, remark, which has, I'm sure you'll be delighted to hear, uh, evolved and changed since I was a senior in college. Oh, that that's a so there's a story right there so let's yeah. so what was it that you said um let's just kind of clip in what you actually said during that ted talks we have to create and develop a healthier relationship with medication I think that Ritalin, Adderall, Concerta should only be prescribed to someone who can physically handle the effects of these drugs and their withdrawal. 12 is far too young. 16 is still too young. There are so many alternatives to medication. Studies have shown that. All right. So you said it should be a last resort. And now you have evolved from that. What's what has been your evolution? So when I. Just as a, a context, when I made the statement, um, it's fun to talk about the argument I was having with my girlfriend at the time and, and where that drive came to give this speech. But it should be made perfectly clear that this was my final year at a, an extremely challenging college. I had spent the last four years going back and forth and back and forth on my uh, Ritalin LA, this long release, extended release. 
and how it affects my personality, my creativity, uh, just getting writing an essay, et cetera. The same thing that we all do journaling. You, you got your, 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 um, BFA, your, um, bachelor of fine arts in directing at Carnegie Mellon. Yes. That's, and, um, that's not too shabby of a school from what I understand. Th- no, it's not. It, and I, I, I never took it for granted. Uh, something I cherish about my four years there is that I treated every single day like I was the luckiest kid in the world. I thought, I think, I cannot sing Carnegie Mellon's praises enough. Um, on the note of its, its academia, it is not a breeze. And uh, it's, it can be fun, it's exhilarating, but it's, it's not easy for, by any means for anyone. And with regards to the School of Drama or the School of Fine Art, it tied in with taking any medication, antidepressants, uh, anti-anxiety, uh, antipsychotics, Ritalin, Adderall, etc. Mm-hmm. You have to be constantly on your guard for how that medication is affecting you, especially if you're in a creative field. Mm-hmm where it's not so much that I have to get this line of code done by, by 11 PM tonight. It's, it's how am I emoting to another human? How am I expressing myself as concise or accurate or vulnerable, authentic as I can. Mm -hmm. And when you're layering on top of that, the need or the want to take any of those medications I listed, it makes it very complicated. It's very, it's very complex to, and it's tiring. It's exhausting to go home every single day and self-reflect and ask yourself, was I a, quote, different person? There, there were air quotes again, but thanks yes. for saying the quote. I just wanted to yes. emphasize that we have, a, <laughs> we, we have a, a, a habitual air quoter with us here. I am a habitual air quoter and hashtagger, so beware. Ooh, a hashtagger. Uh, I I'm a that. hashtagger. Uh, I avoided it for so long, and then I got the bug. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, exa- it's also exhausting to go home and self-reflect almost every day on was I a different person? Was I, was I my most authentic self on, off, on, off the medication, et cetera. Um, so when I got to that moment of writing that line into the speech, it was pure and simple from a place, a self-reflective place of I'm a 21 year old who's been taking this since he was 10. I can look back and mark the moments where taking medication at all was extremely challenging and dealing with going on and off medication was extremely challenging. And I look at my past four years at college and how I, I slowly, gradually, which is natural for, for many ADHDers, kind of removed myself from the medication as I matured, got older. And from that place, from that, it's almost like I was fresh off the battlefield with medication. And carrying that energy into this speech, into writing a speech, that's where this Joan of Arc call to arms about medication, because honestly, of a fear of what my potential future child will go through. It's, it's one of those purely self-reflective, I went through this, it was great sometimes and really sucked other times, mm-hmm. and I don't want to... <laughs> the onus falls on you, the parent or the teacher, to put that kid or to guide that child through that experience. Mm-hmm. And that's where that's what I was grappling with at the time as a 21 year old. And I'm not much older, but every year come with every year comes more experience. And I have tempered that temper. Um since You're 24 now? 
uh, turning 25 in two months. For someone Almost who's not month. good at math, I was just looking at my notes. You did your, your TED Talk in 2013. You said you were 21. And I just put that together. That was impressive for me. <laughs> very impressive. Yeah, very impressive. Yeah. It would have been hard for me, too, on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I felt the need to point it out that I was able to like add you know, oh, I three numbers together. <laughs> to my roommates, to my current girlfriend, when I've done a math problem very quick. I mean, in fact, it's like a beat later. I'm like, did you guys hear that? I, <laughs> I just added and then divided in the same sentence where's the and my answer was close and my yeah and my answer was even close <laughs> it wasn't right but like guys i'm usually way off come on confetti so your thinking has evolved on this yes um and you know so i want to actually go back to to a point you were making though about this the kind of the notion of creative expression on medication and it's, it's really interesting because you know, the, the research, and, and there's not a ton of research that really looks at creativity and with the medication. Um, what is out there currently um, says that it, sh- it doesn't have an impact. Now, subjectively, I, you know, I'm, I am sort of uh, heavily on both sides of this, you know, because as a musician, as a, you know, uh, piano player, I would write lots and lots of music. Right? And this is before I was diagnosed with ADHD. I would write tons of music. I don't know if I finished a single song I've ever written. Classic. Right? And Classic. but with so with the medication, I could be a little bit more organized with my the writing and my music. And I sort of feel that my what 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 kind of uh, stemmed from um, the inability to play the same song the same way twice kind of mm. morphed into I'm really good at improvising. You know, but with a with a greater understanding and hindsight of even if I wanted to play the same the same song the same way twice, could I actually do that? And and looking and understanding why that was challenging, but I kind of worked around that by becoming sort of a good improviser. So nice. if if the medication makes you more creative, but you don't finish anything you do, like is that really helpful then? So. I, I had a conversation this morning, actually, with uh, a new partner of mine in the uh, attention different push in the ADHD speaking realm, mm-hmm. and I'll come back to him later. But he said something that I had not heard yet in the way that he said it, the way that he structured this sentence, which is very rare. It's very rare for anyone that someone says something especially in an area that you obsess over that you've never heard before, especially a, a contemporary of yours up here. And he said, medication, we have to stop giving medication so much credit for good and for bad. And I realized that uh, that's, and I'll get to the, the, the quote that I really like from him in a sec, but that, that is what I realized I was doing my senior year. I was trying to say there are other, there are alternatives to medication, mm-hmm. but what it came out as it was as an obsession or like a Joan of Arc uh, call to arms against medication, which was, as my friend Aaron says, giving it too much credit. I, he, he then says what I love medication as a perspective tool, as a means to gain clarity, not necessarily just to, attack tasks. So I, I feel that medication, again, gets too much credit as something that is a cure-all. 
right, so medication as a perspective tool, not just something to, to attack tasks. Okay. So right. Not like- just something to complete a task. I need to finish this essay. Therefore, I take this medication. The idea being much more related to what you just said about piano. And I think jazz improvisation is a great example. So you write a bunch of songs, you write a hundred songs, but you never finish one. And every time you play it, you can't play it the same way, right? So flash forward, you've written a hundred songs, you're sitting at the piano and you've got, you know, three quarters of a hundred songs written out in front of you. You take a riddle and you take an Adderall and you sit and you meditate and you practice mindfulness exercises. And the clouds clear and the sun shines through and you have a moment of peace. It doesn't mean that you're going to suddenly, you know, the stigma is that you take it and you're like on speed and you just write, you tear through the, the you know, song one, song two, song three, and four hours later, you've finished 75 songs. That right? would be amazing. That would be amazing. That would be a super pill. <laughs> that would already be that people would have, the FDA would have already been overridden by, by, you know, corporate America. And we would have been selling it as a supplement already. Right. Um, that's not how it works. As Aaron and I generally agree, we've interviewed tons of people and we love to ask adults with ADHD, uh, do you think you can override the medicine? Like, have you ever taken the medicine and, and, and overridden it and said, I really don't want to do that. So I'd ask you, like, have you ever overridden your medicine? So um, help me understand the question. So like, if I take a medicine and then decided to not do the things that were on my task list? Correct. Absolutely. frequently in fact yeah right so so there's this this there's this notion from uh, uneducated adults children educators that i won't say let me back that up there is a notion from people who are looking desperate for a solution Mm -hmm. right that's a much better way to put that so it's individuals like myself at one point who were desperate for a solution to a current problem human beings are much more willing to jump to a cure-all or what we think is a cure-all than unpack the nuance, Mm -hmm. the subtle nuance in what taking that medication means. And this is sort of the the penultimate evolution or evolutionary point that I've gotten to, and then I'll go back and unpack it. But I've gotten to a point where the message is not advocating for or against medication. That was a impassioned statement or claim that I made three years ago. I I don't care to advocate for or against anymore. What I am focusing on now purely is sparking debate and conversation and action on getting rid of shame on ADHD, having ADHD, autism, bipolar disorder, et cetera. Just like obliterating shame. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And acknowledging understanding and support. So I, I, it's actually four discover, understand, accept and support. That's my new push that is for four. good job. Thank you. I can, <laughs> it's like a, B, C, D. Um, it's, and that's for all cognitive diversity. So you have to discover that it exists yep. either in yourself, a peer, loved one. You have to understand it research it, find out what it is. So it's not, you know, all of this ADHD is just uh, hyperactive kids. ADHD is, I can't focus. ADHD is overly emotional, et cetera. No, no, no. Get the full picture, Mm -hmm. accept that it's a reality 
that it's not made up. It's not, quote, bad parenting. I kept my fingers to myself. Um, and then four, support. So accept it, then support it. Give life to the creativity, support the positives, the silver linings, and also support the person or yourself through the challenges, right? And avoid shame at all costs. So, yeah. That's well, right. We talk about avoiding shame there. I think that, you know, going to, to Brene Brown's work about shame, that it's it's all about connection. It's all about, you know, sharing your story with those who've earned the right to, to hear the story. It's about not, you know, that we, we know that uh, she says, you know, shame needs three things to grow, silence, secrecy, and judgment. Mm. Um, and, and I think that the judgment piece, too, can be a, a, a kind of cyclical of the self-judgment. Which right. you know, for most of us with ADHD, we're, we're really good at that self judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so kind of sort of acknowledging that and even speaking it out loud, so it, it gives it less power. Because when you when you say the judgment out loud to yourself, then you're, you're decreasing the secrecy kind of and silence part of it because it doesn't right. like, it doesn't like to be spoken. It doesn't like to say, "I'm feeling really you know crappy about that I haven't returned that phone call." And even just sharing that, like, I suck at returning phone calls. I do. Yeah. You know, it's like I I. I wish I didn't, but that, that's like one of my, my shame areas, but I'm working right. myself on, all right, how do I get my team built so I can still respond to what's coming at me in a way that is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of honoring who I am as a person without trying to beat myself up about it. Like right. I, as a business owner, I got to return phone calls as a person with ADHD. That's like an Everest for me, you know? Yeah. And it's like, okay, so it, I, I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. So mm-hmm. what are my options? Yeah. I talk to myself out loud every day, a minimum of three to three to five times every day. As, as the parents grab their children closer and say, don't stare, don't stare. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, and I've been doing it since I was in high school. I don't know if anything started it. It might've been watching Lady Hawk with Matthew Broderick. Um, Why do you do it? I do it now. I know that I do it because of Brene Brown's The Daring Way and The Silence and Secrets. I really, I know that now. It's one of those discoveries I made. I didn't realize why I was doing it, but I was doing it because in the act of saying what just happened, I, I, I swear to whichever gods you pray to or not, when I say it nine times out of 10, I get shivers of joy. And I usually laugh when I say, look what you did. It's like a Wednesday morning and I put the keys in the freezer or something. You know, I went to get ice in the freezer and left my keys in the freezer. I laugh. I point it out and I go, look, look at how ridiculous you are sometimes. Look at this. I'll like open the freezer and close it and open the freezer and close it and be like, this is not where keys go. And then, and, and my roommates think I'm crazy, but we all, you know, we laugh about it. Right. I, uh, yeah, I learned to say what I did out loud. And I nine times out of 10, I laugh. And on occasion, that one out of 10, it's not sad, but it's pensive. You know, 10% of the time, I'll say, you really didn't reach out to that person who you promised you would. And it's been, let's say, two or three weeks. And it's not about beating yourself up. It's saying out loud, you know your you know your own potential, Stephen. You know you are capable of doing these things, and you know that the reason you're not is because of insecurity and self doubt and 
it, you're not kicking yourself in the butt in, in organizing yourself, writing that to-do list and making sure you attack each bullet point on the to-do list. It's, it's the powers within you. You know, from a, um, I'm going to go kind of uh, deeper into the science for just a second here. Mm-hmm. Um, so Russell Barkley um, talks, talked about um, uh, Zaval, Zalaus, not Zalauska, she's the mindfulness. The Polish, the Polish. No, not her, um, the Zalaus, uh, crap. It's the person that talks about self-speech. Okay, okay, yes, 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 yes. Zalauski, but, but, oh man. So um, the, the, those comments, the self-speech dude, who's like really, really well-known, and it looks like Steve might be trying to Google it. Um, I may or may not be trying to Google it. Um, and she t- talks about how we use self-speech, you know, from when we're young children, you'll see kids three, four years old who, when they're talking to themselves, they're really just thinking, but they're thinking out loud because their their executive function hasn't allowed that to become an internal speech process. Right. And it talks about one of the reasons why when as, a, as adults, even let's say we're playing a game. Um, or it could be he Barkley when he was telling the kind of his antidote, it was, he was talking about his golf game. The reason he utters four letter words after he hits an, a, a shot, it's not that it's going to improve what he just did. It's to help direct future oriented behavior. Mm. So when we kind of speak out loud, it's designed to be a self-correcting mechanism, which I thought was just a really interesting kind of function of why do we, you know, uh, sort of curse ourselves sometimes when we make mistakes. Right. The design is sort of to correct future behavior, which I theoretically believe is why um, many of us have had a a to um, done an action that should have been on the to-do list, never made it on the to-do list, but we wrote it down on the to-do list after we completed it just so we can cross it off. Oh, all the time. And I think we do that because in some ways we're like, that really should have been on the to-do list. Not me right. should have as the shaming should have, but like that would have been the type of item that would have been smart to have on the to-do list. And so I'm going to use the self-correcting mechanism as a way to kind of guide future oriented behavior. Uh, so items like that in the future do make it on my to-do list. Right. And Coupled with that are the recent studies in norepinephrine and emotional compartmentalizing mm-hmm. and how, you know, f- frequent, more and more frequently, empathy is being cited as, as extremely vital characteristic, heightened sense of empathy in ADHDers. Uh, and you would you you immediately jump to, oh, that's nice. They're like more caring and they're more sympathetic and nice. Well, actually, the challenging underbelly of that means that when you reprimand either yourself or someone reprimands you, we take it to heart more seriously. Yes. I had a great um, professor in grad school, um, uh, Van Aker from from UIC, uh, I think Richard Van Aker. He was awesome. Like he was like an ADHDer's dream as a professor because he was one okay. of these like six p.m. to nine p.m. classes, and he would he would come out with guns blazing, like dropping f bombs. So he totally nice. like, captured your attention from them. Like so he he was totally like a beady kid, but this mm. now he had like you know two like doctor degrees, both in social work and education. And one of the things he talked about in the I think the one unit we had that w- that was on ADHD and that was the only class that I ever had on ADHD. Um, <laughs> he said for students with ADHD and learning disabilities, 
you know, when we're looking at, at behavioral reinforcement, positive reinforcement. So if you think about a kind of a, an emotional bucket, so every time you praise a, a child with ADHD um, for something good they did, you're adding kind of one marble to their emotional bucket. Mm. Every time you criticize, you're taking away 17. Mm. And that was, for me, that was a very powerful visual, like, oh, yeah. we've yeah. got to be laying off the criticism um, and be laying on the, the positive feedback because of that emotional. It, it is true. It's like when uh, you know, I got a, I'm, I'm going to share a vulnerable story that just from this week. Hit um, me. So I got an email from someone who wanted me to be, I think, I think they wanted me to be on their podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, their, the whole premise of their podcast I really like. It's about people who have made mistakes learn from them. Right? Oh, cool. The yeah. subject line of their email was, Eric, you made a mistake. And the shame <laughs> trigger was just like, <gasps> I didn't even open it right away. I was like, oh my, I, I don't even want to look at it right now. What did I do? Like, oh. and I was like, well, that was an interesting, like, automatic response that I had. Yeah. You know? And it was when I looked at it, and I, and I sort of did what you did. Or I was like, man, you know, that's a sensitive shame trigger for me. You know, it's like, I'm fine with owning my mistakes. I want to be the one that discovers them. Yep. You know, yeah. it's like when someone just, like, in a subject line, I was like, oh, man, that just. Like, how clever. How yeah. clever. Yeah. Of that, I mean, how clever on their part. I, it, I, hope, I hope that someone thought that that would happen. <laughs> that, that the person on the other line was like, I think this is going to have an effect and I want to see how they respond to it. Um, yeah, yeah, so, no, so I, the criticism I, piece emotionally is, it makes so, so much sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but I do also find that a lot of folks also with inattentive ADHD are sort of on the opposite end of that emotional kind of empathy spectrum where there's a lot of uh, kind of intellectualization of stuff and in a, a kind of self-reported um, not feeling when they feel they sort of should. They're just sort of like apathetic. Um, but that's just sort mm. of subjectively from, from clinical observation and experience. Um, so I just, I think that the role of emotion is yeah. very, very relevant, but it's not just one thing. Like ADHD is not just one thing. And to and to wrap this all the way back around in a nice little bow, let's do it. In a nice little <laughs> bow, that is the platform from which I scream. Taking medication of any kind, without question, affects your general mode of thought, right? Especially once you're an adult. So I don't think that. We get tied up. We uh, we get tied up in semantics so much that a study comes out and says taking Adderall, taking Ritalin, taking Concerta, Vyvanse, etc., does not no does not show any signs of affecting creativity. Well, that to me is a vague and is talking about a direct correlation to I took this pill and now I suddenly can't think of colors to paint with, and that's and that's a little ludicrous. To me, of course, it doesn't do that. But what it, but at any point day to day that you change your state of mind for good or for bad, you are making a choice to shift in perspective slightly. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, there are um, thousands of consequences. And I'm not using the net negative 
term of consequence. A behavioral are, term of a, a result of. Yeah. As in there, the consequence of adding one to the number one is two. Is two. There are thousands of results that stem from that an, an original thought to I'm taking this medication. And it's grappling with all of those reactions, both mental and physical, to taking any kind of supplement or medication layered under, right, buried under all of the normal interactions that we have to go through regardless of medication. So if I wake up and I didn't get a whole lot of sleep the night before, I am tired, any neurotypical take Ritalin or medication out of the, out of the uh, uh, equation, I got 30 minutes of sleep last night and I have to be on set all day, I'm going to be frustrated by 4 p.m., right? Add on top of that, all of the... Sorry, take me back a little bit. I oh, think God. I said... No, it's okay. I think I said... <laughs> I believe what I said is when you make that decision to take a supplement, um, take medication, um, really, really affect your behavior chemically in any way, you spark a laundry list of reactions, a, a, tr you know, a tree. It's like the family tree of physical and mental reactions to the chemical stimulant. Now, barring that for a moment, there are so many factors in day-to-day -day life that affect your emotional state and your choices, regardless of medication or supplement, right? Waking up too early, not getting enough sleep the night before, not eating all day. Uh, someone breaks up with you. You get a you get a, a congratulatory email from your boss, and suddenly you're you're extremely happy. Uh, you add on top of that medication of any kind, and it complicates the situation. It doesn't mean that it's impossible. It doesn't mean that it's, uh, you know, debilitating. In fact, I think we would both agree that emotional statuses, uh, em emotional um, pits like shame, are more debilitating than than uh, a shaky hand or you know uh, the feel of hunger because you took some medication and you didn't eat for four hours, whatever it is. Well, yes, I, I, I think I think I think when when as you were saying that I was kind of thinking that well I think that's what you know when, when Brene Brown talks about how shame grows exponentially. I yeah. think what that means, you know, I was just thinking about that is okay. So I have that that phone call I don't really want to re return, and then now that I've waited two days, it's gr the shame's grown like times four. I waited three days, it's grown times twelve. Like every day, it like becomes bigger and bigger. Right. Right. And what I've learned over three years is that the root of the problem is not, again, medication, bad medication, good. The root of the problem is feelings of shame because I can take a Ritalin, finish a task and then come off of it. Right. In that, in, especially for like a quick, a fast acting, quick release, mm -hmm. it's a pretty steep drop. And if you're not in a good emotional state, you might get snippy. You might get uh, frustrated with people you know, short fuse situation. And then you add shame on top of that. Like, God, I can't believe I had to, I depend on that medication to finish that email. It's a, you spiral, right? And so we want to avoid that at all costs. So taking this all the way back, my less educated self in 2013 pointed the target 
the crosshairs at the medication at a young age. So Stephen, you were um, you were telling me about the evolution of medication, kind of how your your thoughts have evolved on this, and I want to know more about that. But before we do, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. So you have been listening to Stephen Tanti, who we recorded originally December no uh, January nineteenth, and after we hit record on this interview. We were just casually talking, and I, I mentioned to him um, about the, the the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group. And um, Stephen, what was so I have him on the line right now, Steve? What was your response when when I uh, kind of mentioned this group to you? Uh, my gut reaction was one that I find its roots in growing up in Texas, in the South, and that was fear. It was a gut reaction of um, I don't know that this is right for me. I don't know that I can commit to something like that. Uh, the word therapy still is a buzzword for me as silly as that sounds. And it is silly. Um, when I first heard the offer, I was taken aback and kind of went to this, like it's a little darker, scarier place of commitment, <laughs> commitment to, to, I think it's a 10 week program, right? So a commitment to something 10 weeks long, three three days out of the week, an hour each of those days, uh, for someone like myself, uh, arguably bridging on laughable. This would be officially the first ADHD therapy, uh, ADHD-specific therapy that I was going through. And, and didn't, you, didn't you say to you that there was, uh, that you would need to like, talk to like, two different people or something to run it by them because you don't make dis- like, big decisions like this without kind of consulting with others? Yes. I had a, uh, actually an ex of mine. Her mother is a social worker in New York and her parents were kind of like surrogate parents for a couple of my classmates when we lived in New York. And I went right to her and asked, um, if this was something that she thought was a good idea. I also talked, spoke to my parents and I spoke to, um, two of my all time best friends from high school back in the high school days. And it, it was, it was, it definitely circled around uh, time and money. It was, a question of do I do I invest this money, knowing that I have this fear of missing some number of classes? Right? It, it, am I going to pull some of the same strings that I did in college, high school? You name it, where you you know ADHD out, you you uh, for any any of a myriad reasons don't go right. And I know myself um, well enough that I, I knew that there was the potential I might not show to some of these things, sometimes for legitimate reasons, sometimes for, um, you know, kind of fibbing silly reasons, uh, you know, personal fears and stuff. So I had to, I had to cast that net and, and ask people, you know, do you think this is something that I, A, should do and B, can do and C, you know, should I just go in the bathroom and look in the mirror and say, come on, just do it. Like, stop kidding yourself. Do it. You need this. So I, um, uh, the, the, the response was resounding. It was, it was, uh, it was go for it. And what is it? An hour a day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, like, come on, you can, you can do that. People will understand. So yeah, I said, yeah, I went, for, I went for it. So we're, we're, uh, ending week seven now. Um, yeah. what describe your experience at the coaching group? I, um, again, was reticent. I was worried about this group and we get into it and, I could not have predicted a the type of people that would be in the group, 
uh, and B, more importantly, their effect on me in such a short span of time. Uh, in just one hour, the intro meeting where we just introduced ourselves and talked about what we do and who we are. After every person, it was like an exponential rise in in happiness, comfort, feeling welcomed, feeling a part of a group. I mean, you can't really you can't pay you can't pay enough for finding a community that no matter what you do on an individual basis, you all share something very unique. When you've gone so long, kind of cherry picking at various friends, you know, throughout life who may happen to have ADHD or autism or bipolar, it's, it's a whole nother ballgame when you sign into a group of 12 people. And there's something, there's, there's something intangible of that. It's a magical moment where about 30 minutes into the hour intro, I, I, it was very clear to me that this was something extremely important, that I was not prepared for how much this was going to mean for me emotionally um, and, and practically. And uh, yeah, so that's, that was definitely a highlight. It, you know, this is why I keep doing this because it's, I mean, I, I regularly feel and hopefully express often enough that I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world because I have the, I have the best job in the world that I get to do this because this is, this is amazing. Getting to hear, you know, your stories, getting to see other people grow the way they are. And, and I'm, you know, I'm in this with you guys. Before we get back to the interview, two things really quick. One, I know that Stephen used uh, the word therapy to describe this group. And I just want to be really clear. This is not a therapy group. This is a coaching group. And we certainly do dive into emotional stuff because when we have ADHD, productivity is emotional. But the next step that you can take if you want to have this kind of experience is go to coachingrewired.com. Register before April 15th, and you can take advantage of that early registration discount. Now, let's get back to the episode. We are back with Stephen Tanti, and as um, our thoughts continue to develop and evolve over all the things that we say and do, I want you to share with us now, Stephen, what has been your development of your uh, thoughts since you left the TED stage. Great. I, I'll start with the medication. The core of my evolution and thought surrounds this notion that at the time of saying that, my crosshairs, my bullseye was on medication. Because it was a short-term solution to my angst over a roller coaster ride of feelings about how uh, Ritalin was affecting my day-to-day life, uh, creativity, my emotional state, etc. I think it was easy to point the crosshairs at that um, because it's so black and white; it's very clear. However, uh, a favorite quote of mine is. If you're trying to solve a problem that's solvable in your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. And to me, the bigger problem worth solving that won't happen in my lifetime is obliterating shame, getting rid of feelings of shame and self-deprecation and self-judgment because of... Yeah, the stigma attached to cognitive diversity. Uh, 
So I was pointing that crosshair on Ritalin because it was easy. And, you know, this image of giving a 10-year-old or an eight-year-old uh, medication or now in preschool, they're testing it out, was like, ah, I can't even imagine someone who has zero control over this interaction and almost utterly involuntary. I mean, especially if we're talking preschool, that really freaks me out. Um, and just for the quick record that um, the, the evidence and, and the, the, the best practices says that only in very extreme circumstances is, yes. is medication for, for preschoolers um, appropriate. I mean, we're talking probably 1% of those with ADHD. Absolutely. I mean, where it's a huge safety risk where if you blink, they're running into the street and like climbing on skyscrapers like those. <laughs> and I've kids. worked with those kids <laughs> and I and I and I get it more now. In fact, I mean, like most of the research points to the earlier the intervention, mm-hmm. the better the outcome for medication. So there you go. There's some evolution right there. Um, can you imagine that 2013 Stephen would say something like that? I realize now after a series of more focused conversations with uh, fellow friends with depression, bipolar disorder, ADHD, autism, anxiety, about the medications they take and the coping mechanisms they use, I've developed more of a nuanced approach to medication that is still cautious, however, more confident in its use as a tool, not as a crutch. Um, one of the what's the difference? The difference is reactionary versus like results based versus process based. But if, the you, if, if I have a broken leg, yes, I'm going to use a crutch, and that's going to be my primary tool for getting around while my leg is broken. Sure. So I like crutches if I have a broken leg. Perhaps the better example is using Ritalin as using medication as an excuse rather than a tool for uh, using it as a, what's another word for a tool? I, you know, I don't think excuse is even what you're, it sounds like you're saying using medication as the only thing you do. Right. As the, as the, um, panacea. Uh, as the panacea, using using medication as, yeah, a saving grace as the silver bullet. Uh, the silver bullet, right? So the idea, like a good a good example, is uh, one of my best friends on the planet, extremely bright, uh, was a double major in art and pre med. So you can imagine, there's a lot going on up Interesting, there. Interesting, yeah, yeah. And she has depression. She's tried a myriad of medications over time, and. One of, the, one of the more important conversations I've had about this idea of using medication of the panacea is with her. And there was a medication she took in college that did not work at all. It, she attributes most of her uh, failing grades freshman year to grappling with this medication. Six years later, it's her favorite medication. Hmm. She, she, she has, her body has changed. She has evolved. And it, she, she doesn't have to mix and match other meds. She just takes this one. And I think that's a really important point too, because it's, you know, we, we use statistics as the state of the art for getting medication, right? I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. it's, we're looking at at statistical probabilities and I think it's also important to hear those kinds of stories as well, because we look, we all connect with stories, which is both good and bad. Because when you, when you share the, a lot of the negative stories, 
we connect very strongly with those and then it influences our decision making when we right. hear positive stories same thing so I, I i think it's good to hear a broader picture and that's really what i try to to uh kind of share with uh with with all the listeners is the stories within the science so i, and I think that one is a really good one no, myself as well, and I'll and I'll uh, wrap this up with that in a, in a moment because uh, there is another uh, series of studies that are bare, vital, vitally important for the medication side of things. So she would tell me about a time in college where taking that medication was reactionary. She would get to a negative place of high anxiety and depression and then take it to cure it. Right mm-hmm. now, six years later, it's preventative. It's like I wake up in the morning, I take this medication because I know I have this series of things I have to accomplish today. And just that what's seemingly subtle change in attitude towards the medication changes everything. Yeah, no, I, and I think that, you know, Ari Tuckman uses the expression, I really like the psychology behind psychiatry. You know, <laughs> it's, it's how we yeah. think about medication. And it's right. really important. Super important. I mean, to be to be a little bit hip and colloquial, it's uh, when when you know people totally not like myself take a drug, any kind of hallucinogen. You hear the colloquial, you know, don't be in a bad mood before you take acid because you'll have a horrible trip or mushrooms or whatever it is. And it is based in as funny and silly as that is. It's based in reality. It's based in your emotional state before chemically altering your brain <laughs> right. i mean it, it, yeah. it sort of makes sense if you're taking a it, mind altering drug it's altering from where it was to where whatever trip it's going to go down yep so if you're starting <laughs> yeah, in a exactly. bad place you're probably going to go to a bad place to apply zero actual science whatsoever and pure and pure logic from uh it, you know from college studies Right. <laughs> from col- yes, from um, from in-depth and uh, d- diligent college studies, many college studies. Um, yeah, starting for the betterment of science. For the betterment of science. For the betterment of science. And my peers. You know, I was yeah helping out my peers. It was self-reporting. Um. So yeah. So if you start in a bad place, you may find yourself in a bad place three hours later, and that was a huge mm-hmm. uh, discovery and acceptance. The so I'll, I'll make that point about um, what you said about uh, uh, um, monitoring. So monitoring is a huge, huge, in my opinion, issue. We, we monitoring can, like self-monitoring, self-monitoring, and also when the child is too young, being monitored. Okay. Um, I just wanted to get clarity on what you were referring to yeah. with monitoring. Yeah. Because my first, my first thought was like, did I say something about monitoring? monitoring? <laughs> no. Well, you said, well, what you said was, um, you know, based on that, the, the, the medication that did not work six years ago works better now. Got it. Yes, yes. So I'm happy about the fact that there is a bigger push in monitoring lately, um, whereas it was really touch and go um, 10 years ago on monitoring this person who's now taking a medication mm-hmm. it's not you know it's not a uh, uh antipsychotic by any means however it is still a chemical altering of this person's brain and it needs to be monitored we're now discovering uh, research finds that you know it's not like monitor that every six months to a year it's monitor that every 
three weeks, month, you know, like check back in. Does that dose work? It does this medication work? And I'm glad that that uh, that the research is pushing that philosophy um, in a good direction. You know, you should be checking every month, uh, every six months, every year uh, is to. Well, and there's gap. a lot of research that also shows with teenagers specifically because you know, Definitely. typical teenagers, you know, without ADHD have a, have a greater need for that immediate gratification and want it now, if not sooner. Right. And so we know for teens with ADHD who are the, the least likely kind of a um, kind of subgroup of, of people who will willingly take ADHD medication, that having a quick a dose adjustment kind of response time is critically important. Right. Um, and, and I probably have mentioned this in the podcast before too, but I do think it's a really important point to, to share because I don't, I don't think it's a really well-known uh, uh point or study that looked at teenagers um, teenagers who were kind of forced by their parents to be on medication have a much lower likelihood when they're in their mid to late 20s to go back on it on their own when they're realizing that that they really do benefit from it when parents allowed their their teenager even if they were struggling to make the independent decision that they did not want to be on it the probability of them going back on it independently is significantly greater. Hmm. I fall under that umbrella. I, the latter. I very much fall. I was, I was allowed. It's in my speech, actually, the Ted talk. And that's mm-hmm. one of the more important, uh, honestly, it's one of the top three most important points of the speech. Because it's, it's so practical. Cause it's, it's yeah. telling parents like, look, like we get it that you're, you're right. You see that your kids may be doing better, maybe yeah. in grades, but for whatever reason, they're not liking it. We have yeah. to honor that, even if that might mean a temporary setback, because we have to look yeah. at long term. Yeah. You spoke about that professor who just ignited the classroom. I had a, an, a small army of, of, of high school teachers who really set the foundation for my positive outlook on ADHD. They really did. And I can't, I can't, not only can't thank them enough, but I can't. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours about every single teacher and what they did specifically. But to put it generally, they treated me like an adult. I may have been 15, 16, 17, 18, but they looked me in the eye and they said, we understand that you're the one dealing with this, not us. And we are here to help you. And if at any point you feel like this is not working, then we will figure something else out because the, our our peak desire is your happiness and your confidence in yourself. And if I didn't have some of those beautiful people, because Adam, who I quote in my speech, didn't have that. He, he my roommate for four years didn't have the same love and empathy from his high school teachers. And you can see the difference. Now we're both adults and we're both perfectly happy. He lives in LA and he's a talented actor and I live in New York and I'm happy. But you in college, you could see the differences in the way that I handled medication, uh, my ADHD, how I felt about myself, how I talked out loud to myself all the time. And you could see Adam really, really struggle emotionally with what was going on with him and how to cope and how to deal because he wasn't. And you could also see a, a difference in. I dare I say maturity, but almost like his interaction with those teachers stunted his self 
confidence and his and his his grit, like his 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 belief in himself. And I, yeah, I I, I, I want to comment too, Stephen. That that um, I don't know if you were able to tell, but as you were sharing the the your experience with with your teachers, I I was getting kind of choked up because <laughs> I was I was like, you know, when we think about how how important that is for for kids with ADHD and it's massive it's when we can help kids and help teachers by helping kids by giving them the tools the language the helping them have the conversation so you know kids can kind of grow up and be positive self-determined uh individuals instead of going through like thinking that there's just something wrong with them I mean, it's it's just extraordinarily powerful to to think that and just that whole idea of we're gonna try this. We think this might help, and if it doesn't, we're gonna try something different. Yeah, man. Sure. I mean, it's it's so small and it can be so profoundly huge. Yeah, and I've the the more kind of morose or morbid conversations I have with peers uh, regarding education in school is that I, I listen to NPR as well. I'm a This American Life Freakonomics Radio Lab a, mm-hmm. an addict. And um, one of the This American Lives was about uh, Missouri public schools and I think around Ferguson and the heroic, angelic social workers who it, in such a small number have to handle tens of thousands of kids at various it's, public schools. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And when you walk with Ira Glass, I think it was Ira went on this one with this woman from public school to public school. And she takes him into these classrooms and he, and she, he's like, where are we now? And she's like honors physics. And there's like six kids, no professor. And he starts asking the kids, where's your teacher? And they're like, we just, we, uh, he doesn't show up. We don't have a teacher for this class. And they're like, and this is honors physics. And you hear, you hear that after time and time again, and you realize, you know, it's, it's the, it's the massive, you know, issue of lack of funding for teachers, uh, results oriented versus process oriented structure of schools. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I went to a, I have to, I have to clear the air on the Ted talk uh, specifically with regards to, it seems like I had a very cushy life and uh, everything sort of went perfectly well. Uh, In some cases that's true and others, not at all. In the case where it is definitely true, I went to a private high school in a wealthy neighborhood where my teachers had the time and the perfect number of students to give me full attention. I don't take that for granted, and I'm not naive about that. I know that the reality is I was a part of the 1% when it came to that education. And what's really, really hard is screaming until your lungs give out about teachers educating teachers how to educate kids with cognitive diversity when a teacher could has every right a public school teacher to look back at me and say who do you think you are do you know how much how little i am getting paid how many students i am responsible for and the background they come from etc the list goes on and on like you to tell me to completely alter my method of instruction when i am you know floating up river without a paddle you know (laughs) is it's like I, your, your, your issue with ADHD is the last thing on my list compared to a list, a much longer list of probably worse now, things. Do you take but, the then response of universal design where if you are, know how to educate the 
child with ADHD or other learning challenges that's actually going to benefit every student? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without question. I think it's, I think the lack of movement and the lack of attack is due to fear and disinterest, uh, disinterest from those with the haves, those with the money to help and fear from those without the have nots. Now you mentioned uh, <laughs> NPR on uh, January uh, 18th. Uh, they did a, uh, a short uh, piece on adult ADHD. Um, NPR did um, about like people being diagnosed over 50 and I, uh, so I made a comment on, uh, um, on, on the NPR site um, uh, under that article, and I uh, you know, threw out a you know, shot in the dark that I thought that Ira Glass should do a whole episode on ADHD, because um, mm. that would be amazing. Uh, yeah, uh, we, sh- I'm going to join that front, man. We're going to, I'll, I'll push him. I'll push him too. I'm in New York. I know where his office is. I've been. What? Yeah, I've, deli- <laughs> I've, I have delivered a blooper reel to the man and the man himself. So I, I'm, I'm going to, I don't know him. I shook his hand once. I'm going to call him. I'm going to say like, you did, did you ever hear my, uh, my Ira glass? Um, uh, I don't want to call it impersonation, but I once You've did, got the voice for it. Well, I once did a whole, like, I'm trying to remember, it was like a promo that I did. And I'm trying to remember exactly if it was for a, one of my coaching groups or like something else that I was doing, or I totally like used his cadence mm-hmm. and like, his like the way he sort of stutters and mm-hmm. like his just delivery. It was totally in like honor of him. I don't remember Let's what give episode me an example. It, just give me act one. Well, like well, what, act one of what, what you're saying is it's not that it's not that you don't know what you're doing. It's more complicated than that. <laughs> exactly. <was> <laughs> exactly. No, not bad. Not bad. I, it's the, uh, I think the 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 number one out there by far is the Fred Armisen impression. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor. Okay. Um, you know, Fred Armisen, Portlandia, uh, used to be on SNL. His impression of Ira Glass is brilliant. And you're not you're that is not bad. You're ha- you're more than halfway if the there. The tone isn't there. I think the cadence is there. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the um, but you could push it a little bit and get that high pitch frequency. Yeah, and, and, and. yeah. I mean, this is a consider <laughs> I haven't like heard his voice in my head in like you know a, a little while. Oh yeah, I bet so, you if you took ten minutes, listen to him straight, you'd have it down pat. That is something that I actually um think that you know all, of all the like things that I'm like would be interested in that has kind of come across my mind of like oh I should work on that is doing impressions. Like I totally huh. enjoy like doing impressions, but I don't like spending any time on it. I, I would. I would. Uh dive right in when i hear someone's voice i can sort of like to a degree spit it back i think that is tied to here's my crazy theory and i'm sure you and i both have our like little list on our desktop of like crazy (laughs) theories about adhd that i won't necessarily say might be wrong but are probably just crazy but probably yeah um i think that as I do impressions as well, and I'm not as good as one of my roommates who also has ADHD, we're pretty sure, and he does unbelievable impressions. But I, I, can, I can zero in sometimes, especially, like you just said, if I've just listened to a British accent or Ira Glass or whatever. Um, I think that's a combination of musicality, but also part of this ADHD or empathy, heightened sense of empathy, there may be some degree of a stronger attachment to someone's voice or to someone's cadence 
because we empathize so so uh, uh, quickly and so strong, so fervently that we we actually just pick up more uh, nuances and more cadences from the voice or from the music or whatever it is. So I'm a, you know, we're as people with ADHD, we tend to be kind of connectors. We connect dots that are mm -hmm. and related. I have it written down in my notes right here. Yeah. And um, I was listening to, I think it was a radio lab uh, thing about, they're looking at um, voice and tonation and tonal languages. They were looking at, um, there's a number of things they're looking at. One was like, why there's so many like Asian uh, musicians that go on to do like amazing things in the classical world because of the tonality of their language right. fine tunes their ear to it. But it was mm. also looking at like emotional intelligence um, in Asian cultures, and hmm. it tends to, they're they're looking at a higher level of just innate emotional intelligence because their their language is so tonal. I I buy it. They uh the Thai like the Thai language where the same word means five or you know many different things based on how you inflect up right. or down or yeah. That's amazing yeah. to me. It's amazing to me too. Language, there there's like a, a solid handful of things that blow my mind. It like and no matter how much I know about the topic, will always blow my mind. Yes. One of them is magnetic sound, like recording sound on a magnetic strip of tape, which you had to do back in the day for a film. That. I know how it works. I don't believe it. I think it's black magic. I, I often then, think that too with like, even like with the records or CDs, like how does that sound get on record, this thing? Yeah. Rec a needle on a record, picking up the grooves. I'm like, nope, that's too cool. I'm going to leave it to um, uh, wizards and warlocks. And I feel the same way about language. Language is just something that I'm always going to obsess. And maybe, maybe like, duh, director, ADHD kid, empathy, all that stuff. Like, of course I'm like, what is everyone trying to say? I just want everyone to speak and communicate with each other and understand each other. Well, and there, there was a, there was a study that was also showing that learning multiple languages can be a huge protective factor for Alzheimer's because the mm. theory I think is, is that it, that your brain basically creates a backup of everything it knows in a different language. Oh, that's, Oh, that is so cool. See, that is so cool. And I believe that, that makes so much sense. And it also allows for, for we see people who know multiple languages to be more flexible thinkers because they're able to think about the same thing in multiple ways. Right. Well, I mean, just, just on its face, uh, uh, poetry across languages. So the word words in other languages that mean, that don't mean a anything in your language or something different in your language. Um, one of my favorite, which is uh, going to be tattooed on my body. This is for everyone to know. If you bought, if you run into me in 2016, this will be on my body. It's um, uh, the state of Louisiana or the city of New Orleans where I was born, but not raised, where my all my family is from. And the Welsh word hiraeth, which is H-I-R-A-E-T-H. And that is a Welsh, an old Welsh word that stands for the feeling of nostalgia for a place you've never been. Whoa. So there's not a word like that in the English language, but if you could speak Welsh, which is, you know, actually pretty damn close to old English, middle English, the old English language huh. and combine the two suddenly, I, I mean, absolutely. You have more neuroplasticity and more flexibility of thought when you know eight different ways to say the same thing, but more importantly, one way to say eight different things. Yeah. 
<laughs> and that's why as mind explodes. <laughs> yeah, and then Eric Tivers uh, died tragically in a cranial explosion. Implosion. <laughs> Well, um, the, the implosion would have been more helpful because then it would be less messy for people to clean up around me. Right, exactly. It would just be. So uh, you're welcome to those who <laughs> have to clean up around me. You guys have been doing it enough of my life, having to clean up the messes everywhere I go. And so my <laughs> final act was to implode instead of explode. <laughs> as, as gratitude. But with that, we have to outplode, which is a word I just made up. But we're going to assume that that means we have to wrap up this okay. conversation because i think that we could probably go on and on about things that fascinate us I know, because i so... think that that list might be endless because yeah i think i yeah. think you and i could start a separate podcast podcast that called um things that make me wow <laughs> or th- or or just called uh it'd be called brain implosions Ooh. yeah cranial implosions Steven, or just the implosion. uh, hashtag implosion <laughs> Hashtag implosion. It's the first time I've ever made the, the symbol for hashtag, which you hashtag. can imagine two piece signs that cross each other to make a hashtag. There you go. Hey, Stephen, where can, uh, first of all, thank you for coming on, on the podcast. I, uh, I'm course. glad that we were able to connect finally. Cause you were like, weren't you like stranded in like an airport oh, the last time God. we were trying to do this? Well, I mean, okay. Barring any political commentary on global warming, um, there have been a series of crazy storms this winter, and one of which was a an F four tornado that came dangerously close to downtown Dallas, uh, where my sister and I were at Love Dallas Love Field, the airport there, trying to travel to Louisiana to see the other half of our family, um, split parents, that whole that whole game, and uh, we were trapped in the Dallas Love Field e- airport with everyone else. Um, witnessing the sheer, sorry, Dallas Lovefield, mismanagement of crisis um, by the the lovely folks who work there. And uh, for about four or five hours, we were trapped in there. Uh, ironically, my father's house is five minutes away from the airport, but we could not leave and uh, shouldn't have. So it's a good thing we stayed. We eventually made it to Louisiana, but it was the following day. And that kind of ran into our, our original interview. But it was nuts. It was absolutely nuts. Um, so uh, speaking of nuts and other tasty snacks. Um, yeah. If people want to get a little bit more information from you, yeah, where can they reach you? Great. So um, that was such short. a bad transition to the end, but it I'm just gonna go. Really? I try. It was like I'm usually pretty good at those. That I swung and I missed. But well, you know, I swing mean, it at of, anyways. <laughs> one of the greatest things you learn in life, especially if you go to an art school, is uh, plan to fail. Plan to fail. I know that whole like fail to plan, plan to fail. No, no, no. Plan to fail, learn from your failures. Um, so you tried, you gave, you took a risk and you know, you learned from it. So there are a couple places to find me. Uh, my website, my name.com, steventonti.com. It's Steven with a P-H. Um, Steven with a P-H-E-N, tonti.com. It's uh, off and on under construction at the beginning of this year because I'm adding some things and changing some things. Uh, you can check out my TED Talk at, on, on uh, YouTube. You can also just Google my name and it pops up. And all the links to that will be in the show notes. Great. So the final place you can find me is uh, I have recently partnered up with this guy named Aaron Smith, who is an ADHD coach uh, who operates out of uh, upstate New York and in Greenwich, Connecticut. He has a website called Potential Within Reach. And he and I are uh, beginning this month hosting group talks where he gives the science because he's the one with the masters and I give the pure anecdote 
uh, because I'm the one with the uh, wacky, wavy hands and uh, full of energy. And so uh, if you go to Potential Within Reach or my website, you'll see links for our meetup group that we do once or twice a month and the public speaking tour that he and I are starting this year. Very cool. You coming around Illinois? Yeah. Say again? You coming around Illinois? Uh, I, are you kidding me? I'm going to hit all of the ADHD hotspots and uh, Eric Tibbers on ADHD Rewired is most certainly one of them. <laughs> well, uh, let me know when you're coming uh, this way. We'll get you uh, to come to our, our chat meeting um, up in Northern Excellent. Illinois. Um, so, Stephen, thank you so much for, for spending the hour uh, with us and uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. Hopefully so. Hopefully so. I, I can't thank you enough. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Ciao. If starting is the hardest part, finishing is a close contender. And here we are at the final stretch. And if you're new to the show, welcome to ADHD Rewired. We are more than just a podcast. We are a community focused on learning, growing, and connection. You could see full outline of this and all other episodes with all the links and resources mentioned on today's show at ADHDrewired.com. As always, there are a number of ways you can support this podcast. Make it a mission to tell at least one person this week about the podcast. And if you're with them in person, ask them for their phone and subscribe to the podcast for them right there. If you haven't done so already, please go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave an honest rating and review. Yes, it makes a huge difference. Set a reminder so you don't forget. You think I'm kidding. I know some of you have been listening for two years. Yes, this podcast is just about coming up on its two-year anniversary. And you still haven't left a review. Seriously? Come on, send me some five-star love. And thank you. You can also help support this podcast by checking out my sponsors. I use Zoom video conferencing every day, and so can you. Go free or go pro, but please go to erictivers.com slash Zoom so they know that I sent you. And get a free audiobook from Audible at audibletrial.com slash ADHD Rewired. And next time you shop Amazon, use the Amazon search portal at my website. A small percentage of your purchase will go to support this show, and it doesn't cost you any extra. Get a jump start on your summer productivity. Our coaching and accountability group begins May 16th. These groups sell out fast. Go to coachingrewired.com for more information and to schedule your free screen call with me today. Do you know that I give talks and all-day workshops? If your school, business, organization, or conference planning committee is looking to hire that person to give an incredible, educational, inspirational talk on ADHD, then look no further than erictivers.com. Click on Talks at the top of the page. Don't just be a passive listener. Become an active member of the ADHD Rewired community. We're on Facebook. You can like our page, but submit your request to join our free and growing community. Watch for a message from me on Facebook because I screen everyone before they come into the group. Production support for this podcast comes from the master of mediocrity himself, Tom Nardone. 
go to tomnardone.net to check out his blog, podcast, and to get a copy of his awesome personal memoir, Chasing Kites. Hey, Tom, do you have anything to add? Until next time.